Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 5th, 2019, and this is episode 2416 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Friday, Friday, Friday. Time for an expert council show. If you want to send in a question for the expert council, you can go see all of our council members by going to the survivalpodcast.com. Under about, you'll see the Meet the Expert Council page, or any of the Friday shows will have a link to that page. You can scroll through all of the awesome experts that we have at our disposal here and send a question in for them. The way to do that is always TSPC expert in the subject line of your email. Send that email not to the council member, but to me. Jack at the survival podcast.com and say, Jack, my question is for expert council member, put their name. My question is bottom line up front, make your question in one sentence, hit the return key, give us your details. I'll get it over to them. And as long as they're not on the pikers list, they will get me an answer back. And usually questions that come in for the council will come back in one to two, three weeks maximum, be on the air. Some of the council members, especially new ones, they get a big flood in and they get a little bit of a backlog and takes a little bit longer. Here's what we got up for you today. Training for high elevation activities. Really hiking, but I would say any high elevation activities with Jessica Dixie Mills. Uh, investing $1 million or $5 million with John Pugliano. Choosing between geothermal and conventional HVAC systems with Sean Mills. Dealing with canine hip pain with Dr. Kelly. RV living during harsh weather, specifically cold weather, with Gary Collins of The Simple Life Now. Lowering blood pressure without prescription medication from old dog bones. Diagnosing transmission problems in diesel trucks with Derek Bon Pietro. And relocation to a new state absent of any local support to do so. And having difficulties finding a place to live, etc., with me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko, your host today of the SurvivalPodcast.com. Got a, a little uh, intro segment for you, I guess you'd say, today on cooking. Yep, cooking. Last night, uh, we had Instagram all, all up in arms as we were posting little short videos and pictures of making our dinner. And Facebook got pretty worked up, too. People said, hey, I need to know how to do this. Uh, we made, last night, some bacon-wrapped jalapenos. You're like, well, Jack, that's easy. Well, yeah, it is, but we didn't just make bacon-wrapped jalapenos. We made uh, this crab and cheese stuff, bacon-wrapped jalapenos. And i got to give credit for this idea to the Riata restaurant in downtown Fort Worth a few months ago. Actually, quite a few months ago now, because it was before Christmas, I took my wife to the Symphony downtown Fort Worth. And about the only person in the world that could get me into a symphony orchestra show is my wife, and I'm happy to do it for her. And I'm like, well, if we're going downtown, we're going to eat somewhere nice before we go to this symphony. So we went to Riata, one of our favorite places downtown Fort Worth, and we just had a couple of appetizers because we were going to get a full dinner afterward. And one of the appetizers I saw these crab-stuffed jalapenos, and so we ordered an order of them, and they were so good. I'm like, this is easy. I can do this. So here's how you do it. You get some canned crab meat, and, and generally you can buy the really expensive stuff, 
But the stuff that's about $3 a can, like where they sell the sardines and stuff, will work for this, okay? Uh, so about to make about 18 big peppers, this is what you're going to need. You need one can of crab meat. And the big thing to do with the crab meat, when you open that can, press it down and squeeze all that moisture out of it. Don't crush the crab meat till it's mutilated. Uh, just squeeze the water out of it. And if you can, get lump crab meat. It's a little bit bigger pieces of meat, but any of the canned crab will work. Then you want almost an equal amount of grated cheese of your choice. We use sharp cheddar. It was really good. About 50-50. Just do it by eye. Don't make this hard. Crack one egg. Mix it up so it's the whites in, in, are mixed with it. Dump it in the bowl. And then you can either use like a big pinch of breadcrumbs, or what I used was a big pinch of almond meal to keep the carbs really low in there because there was almost no carbs by the time this was all said and done with. And mix that up. And then get yourself a big old pinch of Chef Paul Prudhomme's Redfish Magic Seasoning. I've featured it here before. I'll put a link in the show notes to my review on it. Big old pinch of that. Use that like your seafood seasoning. Mix that all up. Just a loose mix. with a, You can use a fork until you get it all incorporated. Let it sit for, I don't know, five minutes. The way you do your jalapenos, you cut them right down the middle. Don't cut the end off. If you cut the end off the jalapeno, the top, the cap, it, then all the cheese and stuff and, and grease oozes out instead it gets all collected in there for you. Okay, So you cut the jalapeno peppers right down the center into two halves. Take a small knife and clean out all of the pith and the seeds. What The easiest thing to do is kind of take your knife and just go across the top cap of the pith. That's the white part. Don't cut the pepper through the pepper, though. And then just take your knife and make a couple little cuts into that top cap. Take a spoon and just scrape out the pepper. That's the easy way to do. Now, once you got all your peppers ready, see, so go ahead and mix your crab mix. Let it sit so it can kind of come together while you're doing your peppers. So you cut all your peppers, nine peppers. It'll make 18 individual poppers, I guess you'd call them. And then you're going to stuff those with your mixture to about level. And then this is the important part, wrapping the bacon. You must wrap the bacon like you are wrapping an injured joint with an ace bandage. Start up at the top side of the pepper, hold your bacon, and stretch it so that it has tension in it, overlapping your wrap till you get all the way around and put a toothpick through to hold the bacon on. Now, this is where you can make your life difficult, you can incinerate your peppers, or you can make your life easy and have perfect results. You, I use a half uh, or a baking sheet, like for baking cookies or whatever, a sheet pan, shallow one. I get a the, the, the little racks for cooling cookies. And I really need to make these items of the day. Maybe I will next week. Cover the sheet pan with aluminum foil so your cleanup takes about 13 seconds. And then you take the cooling rack, little Teflon-coated cooling rack like for, for baking cookies on, and set that in the sheet rack. Put your peppers on top of that. And then cook that on your grill or in your oven. If you go in your oven, go in a neighborhood of 400 to 450 degrees, 425, play with your oven, see what works for you. As soon as the bacon looks nice, nicely cooked, go ahead and take them out. And that bacon will continue to kind of tighten up as it cools and crisps up a little bit, and they are absolutely fantastic. And if you, if you clean out the peppers the way that I told you to, they will not burn your mouth too much or not be too hot. The one place you'll find if you eat that last piece of pepper right by the stem, that's usually where there's a little bit of the white part. It'll be a little bit hotter if you're sensitive to that. You can do all kinds of variations on this, guys. Get yourself some shrimp. Um, do a quick uh, steam on the shrimp. 
Uh, cut them up a little pieces. Use that instead of the crab. Mix the two together. It's easy. Don't make it hard. I didn't give you exact amounts because I don't use exact amounts. Anyway, that's your little bonus segment today. Hope you're hungry now. If you're not, take a look. I'll put a link to, to the stuff on Facebook where we made these things, and it'll kind of make you hungry then. Let's go ahead and get into the expert counsel responses now. Jessica Dixie Mills is going to give us an answer on training for high elevation activities. And yeah, this is something that uh, my wife and I dealt with when we went to a uh, a trade show up in Colorado. And my wife had some issues dealing with the change in altitude without even really being physically exerting, and it just took a couple days to uh, to adjust. Uh, with that, hey Dixie, what say you? Hey y'all, Dixie here from Homemade Wanderlust over in YouTube land. Today I'm here to answer a question about backpacking that comes in from Eric who says he's training for a hike. And some details that Eric sent in, he says that he's 47 and lives in northern Michigan at an elevation of about 1,200 feet. He hikes the North Country Trail whenever he can, averaging between 6 to 15 miles each hike. And he says that he never really experiences times where he's out of breath. But then Eric traveled out west to the Tetons, Yellowstone, and Glacier National Park areas and noticed that there's a big difference between hiking at 1,200 feet and then hiking between 6,000 to 7,000 feet. Eric wants to know if there's any training he can do for his next trip so he's not huffing and puffing every half mile to mile. And he says that he doesn't smoke and rarely drinks, so none of that should be an issue. First off, let me say thank you for your question, Eric. And the short answer is yes, there are some things that you can definitely do to train for hikes at higher elevations while you're at lower ones. As many of y'all know, the oxygen level in the air becomes lower as you travel higher than a mile or so in elevation. So when you exert yourself doing physical things like backpacking, it can be tough to breathe if your body isn't conditioned to doing those activities at those elevations. And I lived in Colorado for a while and I noticed when I first moved out there that even just walking upstairs at a slow pace or even sometimes it felt like just existing was difficult because it's just so much harder to breathe when your body isn't acclimated. Essentially what you want to do, Eric, is up your VO2 max, which is the volume of oxygen or O2 that your body can process. And there are ways to do that without having to travel to those higher elevations and exercise there. So you say that you're never out of breath, but what you need to start doing is pushing yourself to the point where you are out of breath. And that can be while you're on these backpacking trips, but also you can use biking, swimming, and or running to improve your cardiovascular endurance. With swimming, you want to focus on strokes that force you to hold your breath for a while. And with running, you can go out like three to five days for 30 minutes to an hour or so. And what you want to do is run at a pace that keeps your heart rate at 70% to 85% of your maximum heart rate. Now, the way that you can calculate your maximum heart rate is to take the number 220 minus your age. So for you, Eric, 220 minus 47 is 173. So the range of 70 to 85%, if I can do math, and I, I did graduate and work for a while as an engineer, so I hope I can do this basic math. But anyway, that would be the range of 121 to 147 for you personally, Eric. So for the rest of y'all, again, if you're interested in figuring out what yours is, 220 minus your age and then 70 to 85% of that number. So if you can get out and, and do this for three to five days, I know you might not can always hit the North Country Trail every single day, but even running in your neighborhood or somewhere locally, you can start conditioning yourself. 
Also, climbing stairs to strengthen your leg muscles and your lungs, and you can even do this with a pack on, or if you've got a hillside near you somewhere that you'd rather you know, be outside while you're doing this, just some sort of steep incline outside, and you want to push yourself to get faster and faster on that hill or on those stairs. This training and conditioning should be done several months in advance. You really can't start too soon. You could start late enough to where you won't really see any benefits from this training. So if you've got a trip here in the near future, it doesn't hurt to go ahead and start training. You might not notice the benefits for this trip, but maybe the next one that you go on. And also as a side note, it never hurts to lighten your pack weight. So you can train with whatever weight you want to, obviously not something so extreme that you injure your joints or anything like that. But when you go out on your backpacking trip, before you go, you can kind of analyze your gear and make sure that there's really nothing that you can lighten up because of course, having less weight on your back will help you not exert yourself quite as much while you're out at those higher elevations. Now, when you arrive at whatever location you're going to backpack at, if you have the time and you can allow yourself a couple of days to kind of acclimate your lungs and your body to those higher elevations, that's definitely a good idea. Maybe there's a cool town to check out or some sightseeing that you can do while driving around. Again, just to be at that higher elevation and kind of get used to that before you get out there and really start exerting yourself. It's important to make sure that you're drinking plenty of water, even in advance. So two to three liters per day, you know, a couple days before you get out there and also maintaining that, of course, while you're actually backpacking. And there are some drink mixes available that are said to kind of help acclimate yourself. And so you want to start these before and also usually during your hike. And there's one brand that I used while I was out backpacking on the Continental Divide Trail, and it was actually called Acclimate, which is a great name because you're using it to acclimate. All right. Now, when you begin your hike at these higher elevations, it is, of course, recommended that you take plenty of breaks and, and take it easy right out of the gate. But hopefully some of these training exercises will allow you to extend the time between your breaks. It's just that you don't want to get out there and exhaust yourself immediately and either, you know, just be miserable the rest of your trip or experience something that can be life-threatening like altitude sickness, which you can experience without even overexerting yourself. And I'll talk about that a little bit in just a minute. As a general rule of thumb, it's recommended that you don't sleep 1,500 feet higher than you did the previous night, so no more than 1,500 anyway. So say you sleep at 7,500 feet the first night of your trip, then the next night when you make camp, you don't want it to be above 9,000 feet. Again, a general rule of thumb, everybody's bodies will be affected differently by the higher elevations, but just something to keep in mind. On a final note, I want to talk about altitude sickness a little bit. First off, I feel like it should be called elevation sickness because isn't altitude the distance between, say, like an airplane and the surface of the earth, whereas when you're on a mountain, you're at a higher elevation, your feet are still on the ground, so I don't know why they call it altitude sickness, but I don't know. My friend Perk and I talked about that a lot on our through hack. But anyway, back to the point, uh, some of the signs of altitude or elevation sickness, would be fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, shortness of breath, headache, and a fast heart rate. Obviously, some of these things you might experience anyway on a backpacking trip, like shortness of breath or you know an increased heart rate while you're climbing. Um, but you really want to listen to your body and make sure that it's not 
altitude sickness. So if something just doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And it's important to recognize these signs. And if you experience them to get to a lower elevation as soon as possible. All right. Well, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much again, Eric, for the question. And I hope that that helps you enjoy your next trip a little bit more. And I'm so glad that you're getting out there in those areas because they are absolutely gorgeous. If any of y'all have questions regarding backpacking, vlogging, etc., be sure to get those to Jack. And feel free to stop by my channel to learn more about what I do. If you want to learn more about backpacking, or maybe backpacking isn't so much your thing, but you want to see some of the beautiful places in the U.S. like the Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, or the Continental Divide Trail, I have captured my journeys from those three trails, and they are up and ready to watch. Thank you all again, and I'll see you next time. Next up, I got a really interesting one. Uh, Marty actually sent this to me. Marty and I go way back. We've exchanged a lot of emails and said, Jack, how would you invest a million dollars? And then how would you invest five million dollars? And I said, you know, I got a guy better than me to answer that question, a guy that actually does this kind of thing for people, John Pugliano. John, got too much money in our pocket, burning a hole in it. We need to make it even bigger. What do we do? Hey, TSP listeners, today our financial question comes from Marty, and Marty is asking, how would you invest $1 million? And then he goes on to ask, what if it were $5 million? Would that change your thinking? Well, Marty, this is really a fun question, but it's also an incredibly difficult question to answer in the limited amount of time I have in this segment. So because of the time constraint and then also because of all the many different paths that this question could take, you know, from real estate investing to investing in small businesses to investing in the stock market, you know, I really need to limit the focus on what I'm going to talk about. And so I'm going to start out by saying that my comments are going to be limited to investing a million or a multi-million dollar portfolio strictly in terms of the stock market. And then also to prevent myself from wandering down a bunch of rabbit holes, I'm going to focus on five areas where I think investing a million or a multi-million dollar portfolio is different than if you were managing a smaller sum of money. Okay, so the first thing doesn't really have to do with investing, but it has to do with your thought process. Now, normally when you're investing money, particularly retirement money, your goal is to provide yourself with retirement income to supplement your Social Security and to preserve that capital so that it not only provides you with retirement income, but also so that you don't outlive your money. The one difference about having a multi-million dollar portfolio is that generally speaking, if you're living a moderate middle-class lifestyle, and if you don't have any consumer debt, and if you've paid off your mortgage before you get into retirement, then generally speaking, if you have a couple million dollars, you can invest that in such a way that it'll provide enough income for you where you don't have to worry about outliving your money. Now, when I say you don't have to worry about it, I'm not talking about living the lifestyle with the rich and famous. You're certainly not going to live the same lifestyle that Oprah Winfrey would live. But in general, a couple million dollars combined with your Social Security is going to throw off enough income where you can live a nice, moderate, middle-class lifestyle and you won't outlive your money. And so the reason that changes your thinking is that instead of just investing retirement money, your portfolio has now become an endowment fund because it's going to outlive you. And of course, the more money you have, the more of a likelihood that there will be an endowment fund. And so you want to start thinking beyond yourself. What do you want that money to do after you're gone? And how are you going to structure and invest that to make the most of that money? 
Now, again, I don't have time to go into all the particulars of what that might be. But once you get to a million dollars and specifically beyond a million dollars, that's definitely a different thought process that you want to have. Okay, number two is tax considerations. And these are less important than they used to be, particularly since in the last tax overhaul that President Trump put through, the threshold on estate taxes has been more than doubled. Right now, unless you live in a state that imposes their own inheritance or estate taxes that are different than the federal governments, and there are about, I don't know, 19 or 20 states that do that, and if you live in one of them, you should probably move. But as long as you don't live in one of those states, the federal threshold on estate taxes for an individual have now been raised to $11.4 million. And if you're a married couple, it goes up to $22.8 million. So what that means is if you're a married couple and your net worth is under $22.8 million, then you no longer have to go through all the convoluted tax mitigation strategies that you used to have to do to pass your money on to your heirs. But of course, there are other taxes. There are capital gains taxes for money that's held outside of a retirement account. There are required minimum distributions on IRA accounts for those that are over 70 years old. But really, none of that's any different than if you had less than a million dollars, other than, of course, your tax bill will be higher. So my investment tax strategy on a million dollar or more portfolio wouldn't be much different other than for the amount of money that is in a traditional brokerage account, you know, outside of a tax advantaged account like an IRA or a Roth. And the big difference that I would do there, particularly if it was a million dollars or more, is that I would really limit the amount of transactions that I make. And I would do that by investing in high quality blue chip stocks that pay a dividend of somewhere between, say, 2.5% and 4.5% dividends. That way I can use the dividend income as my retirement income, and the less that I sell those stocks means the less capital gains that I'll incur, and so therefore I'll pay less in capital gains taxes. Now, there is a problem with that buy and hold strategy, and that takes me into the third and the fourth topic, and the third topic being diversification. And portfolio diversification is different once you start getting in these higher value numbers because when you just have a small amount of money, you're limited to how many individual stocks you can purchase. I mean, think about owning a stock like Google or Amazon. Google, the Alphabet stock, it's currently trading at over $1,200 a share. And Amazon's trading at over $1,800 a share. So if you're only talking about you know a portfolio of, say, $10,000, well, just owning a couple shares of Amazon and Google are going to take up more than 50% of your portfolio. And that's not diversification. And so when you have smaller amounts of money, you're going to seek diversification by investing in exchange-traded funds. Now, once you get up into that million-dollar range, your reliance on things like ETFs are going to be a lot less. Now, I'm not saying that you'd never own an ETF because I personally do use ETFs quite a bit but I generally use them to be sector specific for when I want to take a concentrated position in, say, you know, the Japanese economy. Rather than buying specific Japanese stocks, I'm going to buy an ETF that focuses on Japan. Or if I want to buy into a particular tech sector, instead of rolling the dice and trying to pick just one tech company that's going to do better than all the others, I might invest in a sector specific exchange traded fund in that particular space of the tech industry. 
And so with a million-dollar portfolio, it isn't that you wouldn't own ETFs. It's just that those that you own are going to be very sector-specific, and you're probably not going to be relying on broad index ETFs like SPY. And so if you have a million-dollar portfolio or even a $5 million portfolio, I think that you can get broad general diversification by holding, say, 30 different positions. And the reason I like that number 30 is that your risk exposure is limited to only 3% in any one position and also that it's a manageable number for you to get your head around. I also like the number of about 30 positions because if you think of the way the stock market is broken down, you know, broadly you have the S&P 500 and then within that there are about 12 broad-based sectors. Now there's the energy sector, there's consumer discretionary, there's consumer staples, There's industrial, there's technology, there's healthcare, utilities. Those 12 sectors represent the big divisions of the overall economy. And if you pick the two or three leading stocks within each of those 12 sectors, then you're going to have somewhere around 24 to 36 individual stocks that you own. And so if you're adopting a buy-and-hold strategy because your million-dollar portfolio is outside of a retirement account, and you want to avoid capital gains taxes, then by owning 30 or so of the best companies in America that are widely distributed over 12 sectors of the economy gives you some pretty good diversification. Well, let me digress here a second. One other thing I forgot to mention when I talked about tax consequences, and this is something that most people don't realize, but let's go back to that portfolio that you have that's in just a standard taxable brokerage account. Another good reason for wanting to hold that for the long term into perpetuity is that when you pass away, your heirs are inheriting that stock, not at the cost basis that you bought it at, but at the cost basis as of the day you pass away. So what that means is if your grandfather was smart enough to have bought Apple stock 40 years ago, and if he dies tomorrow, when you inherit that stock from him, it's passing to you capital gains tax-free. That's a very important tax mitigation strategy that most people aren't aware of. Now, getting on to the fourth area that's different for a million-dollar portfolio than it is for a smaller amount of money, and that's the use of options contracts. Things like protective puts and covered calls can be used not only as tax mitigation strategies, but also as ways to increase your overall annual rate of return in a very risk-adjusted fashion. I can see here I'm running out of time, and I can't do this topic justice. If you're in a position where you think you can maybe take advantage of option strategies, then go ahead and get in contact with me, and I'll get you some more specific information. Uh, But listen, I'm out of time. Thanks for the question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. So I'm just going to add a little bit here. Let's look at it from the standpoint of, let's say... uh, Jack Spierko, for some reason, goes out and buys a lottery ticket. And all of a sudden, Jack Spierko decides he's going to go look at TV to see if he won a lottery. And by God, he won. And next thing you know, he's getting a check. And by the time he pays the government and department of making him sad, uh, he ends up with $5 million that he didn't have before. I am probably going to then stake uh, about a million dollars toward paid-for real estate. And I'm probably going to hire a guy like John Pugliano to, to take the other $4 million and manage it for me. That, that's what I'm going to do. And we're going to have, with that kind of money, we're also going to have some strategic discussions with a CPA and a tax attorney uh, beyond the typical uh, 
prevention of the government from stealing my money. Okay, um, but I completely agree with John here. But there there is a point that I think you balance. Hey, I need money for my retirement. With hey, I want to live the life that I want to live right now. And most people could retire with five million dollars. Uh, in their 20s and live their whole life fairly comfortable. Maybe not having it, it, it ain't like it was you know 50 years ago. You had five million dollars, um, you could live like a millionaire for the rest of your life and be one. Uh, so today you, you may not be able to live quite that high on the hog, but you can live pretty damn good. Uh, my strategic goals with five million dollars would be here's four. Make sure I have enough cash flow to basically live my life the way that I want to. Um, here's my budget for that. Here, I'm going to take a million dollars. I'm going to go invest this in uh, real estate, and I'm probably going to be putting most of it into a single property that I'm going to live on. And it's going to be mostly wooded, and it's going to be a recreation property slash living property and, and, and built up exactly the way that I want it. That That is, you know, I know Marty was looking for some things beyond just the typical, and that's what I would do. Now, a million dollars, a million dollars I'm going to stick primarily to what Pugliano just said, because I want to grow that to the five million so that I can do what I just said. All right, that's that's my mentality in this. Uh, next up, we have a question on geothermal HVAC systems for Sean Mills. Hey, everybody, this is Sean Mills at HackMySolar.com, and today I have a question about geothermal systems. Uh, so this is from Anonymous. I have a 20-plus-year-old dying conventional HVAC unit that will need significant upgrades to bring to code. I also hate the condensers, and the new ones are huge. I'm getting a quote to replace and also for a vertical loop geothermal system. I'll be in the house for 10 to 13 more years. Assuming the math works out equally for either system, would you do geothermal? Thanks. Well, first of all, if the math works out equally, I would absolutely go with the geothermal system. It's going to last much longer than a conventional HVAC, and it's actually going to add more to the resale value of your house. So that's the, that's the short answer. Now, to dig into this a little bit more, uh, geothermal systems are essentially heat pumps that exchange heat using the same principle as a standard HVA system, but they are exchanging heat with the ground versus with the ambient air temperature. We know as students of root cellar culture that the ground is typically about 50 degrees year-round, and if you think about it just from a logical standpoint, it should take less energy to extract heat from a 50-degree earth temperature versus a 20-degree ambient air temperature in the winter. There's just more heat in 50-degree uh, earth than there is in 20-degree air. And likewise, to dump heat into a 50-degree earth versus a 90-degree ambient air temperature in the summer. If you've got an HVAC, HVAC system uh, that's in the sun, uh, you might have found that if you shade that, you actually get some savings in your energy bill. And so essentially, we're using that same philosophy of reducing um, our electrical costs by utilizing um, you know, those cooler ambient temperatures. We're just finding these in the ground in a geothermal system. Now, like I said before, geothermal systems last a long time. Most are for 40-plus years. I've heard of systems that are 50-plus years old where guys only had to replace some contacts and it's still running great. 
Um, and I read a recent Air Force Academy study that showed that typically a geothermal uh, system pays for itself in between two and ten years. Now, the thing to remember with the geothermal system is that you need good site access and, a, and relatively workable soil or a lake. Uh, workable soil is, is great, but if you have a lake close by where you can run closed-loop systems in the bed of the pond, uh, that would absolutely work. There are systems out there like that. And realistically, that's the least expensive option because you don't have to do any digging except for in between the pond and the house. Uh, now, at my house, for example... This wouldn't work. We're sitting on bedrock. We'd have to drill 300 foot straight down with, with essentially like uh, oil well drills, you know, to get down. And, and Jack's chunk of limestone probably isn't the best option for this either. But in areas with deep clay or loam, like much of the northwest and or midwest and northeast, this is a fantastic idea. Uh, geothermal systems are about 200% as efficient as a standard HVAC, HVAC system in the winter. And about 150% is effective in the summer. So the payback works best in areas with a greater heating than cooling load. I can tell you all the people that I personally know who have geothermal systems live in northern Indiana, uh, where they've got high electricity costs and a bigger um, a bigger heating load than cooling load over the course of the year. And I can tell you they all absolutely love them. It typically makes the most sense to do this when you're building a house or in like the uh, question, um, you've got a system that's going out and you're replacing it versus trying to retrofit in the middle of a duty cycle of an existing system. You're not really going to get the bang for the buck. I will add there is a 10% investment tax credit for geothermal systems. So uh, if you were to spend, say, $20,000 in getting a geothermal system put in, it would reduce your tax, not your taxable income, but your actual tax by $2,000. So that's something they also consider when you're penciling out, uh, or as Jack would say, Excel spreadsheeting out the payback on this system. Well, I hope that helped you out. Guys, keep the questions coming in, and I'll keep getting the answers out for you. Uh, if you've got anything you'd like to follow up with me about, just send it over to Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at hackmysolar.com. Thanks, and have a great day. Next up, we have a question for Dr. Kelly on dealing with hip pain in dogs, specifically aging dogs. Dr. Kelly, take it away. Hi, Jack and all TSP listeners. This is Dr. Kelly here to answer all your furry pet questions. Today's question is from John and says, what do you give dogs for hip problems? What do you give your dogs to make their coat more full or shiny? Details. I know you and Dr. Dees have spoken on this subject before, but I've forgotten your recommended treatment. Right now, my Corgi Shepherd mix is on Tramadol for his pain. He's 12 years old and was severely abused in life. I'd like a more natural solution for his hip pain. Thanks for all you do, John. Okay, John, so the first stage in determining is really determining what is causing the pain or limping. Is it arthritis, degenerative neurologic condition, disc injury along the spine, or something else? And so for the purposes of this, um, I'm going to be sp mainly speaking about arthritis pain, although some of the pain medications and treatments can be helpful for other causes of pain as well. And older dogs and cats, just like humans, suffer from arthritis as they age. It's actually very common, and the majority of older pets will have it to some degree, whether it's appreciated or not by the owner. Dogs and cats can hide pain really well, and it's rare to have a pet cry out in pain or complain about it. So the changes to watch out for are decreased movement. I mean, older animals will sleep more, but if they're really lazy, some of that may just be secondary to pain. And they'll often have trouble standing up from a lane or sitting position. They may lose footing on slick floors due to muscle mass loss. 
they may not jump up as much or they may even have classic limping symptoms. So just like some people, signs of the pain may be worse in the mornings with colder weather or after weakened warrior syndrome, um, after playing hard when they aren't used to it. So my approach to treatment is to start with the simple and move up the chain, adding medication as needed. I think natural approaches can be very helpful for these guys. And the goal is to get as much benefit out of them as you can. But then with very few exceptions, I mean, I wouldn't hesitate to add on other prescriptions on if an animal is in pain. Now, if side effects occur, then you want to switch the meds. Um, but I find owners are sometimes hesitant to, to treat arthritis pets for fear of either the medication or the fear of the cost. But many times you can develop plans that will take all of this into consideration and allow a pet to live without pain or greatly reduce it. So you really want to work with your veterinarian. And if you don't think something's working or the side effects are unacceptable, um, you really want to talk to them so you can figure out a new plan. And it may take a couple tries to get the right one for your pet, but it's definitely worth it. Now, a lot of these ideas are gonna sound very familiar if you've heard Doc Bones or Gary Collins talk about arthritis management in humans. Now, the first step is if your pet is fat, it has to lose weight. Each extra pound just adds more and more pressure on those joints. And yes, your pet will probably be hungry, and yes, they will give you sad puppy eyes, but don't give in, be strong. Um, the second thing is exercise modification, but continued exercise, just to help maintain that muscle mass. And even physical therapy, yes, your dog can go to rehab, um, can be very helpful. And if you're in an area that has access to that, they can put them in underwater treadmills to alleviate some the pressure but help maintain and build muscle mass for them. Uh, other treatments such as massage, heat, nice therapy, and hydrotherapy can be helpful. And some of those are things that you can do at home without even going into a major facility for it. Now, as far as supplement and medication options, um, it starts with omega fatty acids, either as a supplement or a prescription food, providing high N3 to N6 ratios can be really helpful for the joints. And this one helps that skin and coat too. Um, the mobility prescription foods do work well, but you need to watch the calories as by the nature of what's in them, they do tend to be higher calorie foods. Supplements like Flexidin Advanced that contain UC2, which is undenatured collagen type two, and it acts sort of like an allergy shot to desensitize the body to the collagen so that if it breaks off in the joint, in, the body doesn't react with as much inflammation and therefore not, it doesn't cause as much pain. And studies on this show really good results. Glucosamine and chondroitin, I'm less convinced that this one helps as much. Studies show it sometimes helps, sometimes not. As far as my patients, I'm not, I don't think it's like a slam dunk or anything. And there was one study that even showed that UC2 was less effective when it was given with the glucosamine and chondroitin. So it's a bit up in the air. Uh, but if I had to choose, I'd probably pick the UC2 at this point over the glucosamine. Um, Adequan is an injectable it's a polysulfated glycosaminoglycan. And basically what that does is it's providing building blocks for cartilage and it has anti-inflammatory properties of which helps slow down the cartilage damage and it helps promote joint repair and the creation of joint fluid. And I've seen a lot of animals benefit from this one. And you initially start with like a series of injections um, once or twice a week for several weeks and then it decreases down to where they're eventually just getting them like once a month. Green-lipped muscle supplements have been shown to have some effectiveness. Um, Eggshell membrane products like Movaflex, avocado soy unsaponifiables like Dasequin. Um, with any of these supplements, I would give it at least 60 days to see if you're getting a benefit as it takes time for them to work in the body and to get the full effect. Um, depending on how scientific you want to be about it, you could add one, see if you're getting better results, and then add others on or just start to add multiple at the same time. Um, 
there are some options too, like acupuncture and laser therapy to help with the muscle aspect. Um, but I think some of these are your definite, your mileage may vary type of things. And I've seen, you know, the results, I haven't been like that impressed with it, but if you, that may have to do with just where the animals we had seen, where they had gone. So I don't know. Um, once you've gotten the max benefit from all those types of supplements and other things, then the prescription meds come into play. And so these are ones that your veterinarian would prescribe for your pet. And this will give you some idea of kind of the options that are available. Um, Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories such as carprofen, meloxicam, and there's others too, work really well for decreasing arthritis pain. Um, it's important to keep an eye on the liver enzymes with these drugs, and most dogs never have an issue, but if your dog does, it's important to know that. Um, and often, once just stopping the medications, those values can reverse and go back to normal. So um, something to be aware of. Tramadol, like your dog is on, I think it gets varied results. Dogs can't convert it to the opioid derivative the way people can. So any pain benefit really has to do with how it affects serotonin and norepinephrine in the body. And this may actually be, help a painful dog if it's you know, lowering the anxiety level and helps calm them, then the other meds can work better because if you're anxious or you're worked up about the pain or anything else, then it just makes everything much more painful. So it's one that used particularly in addition to other meds may be helpful Gabapentin can also be an effective addition or used for pets that can't be on and non-steroidal for whatever reason, if they had liver issues or something else going on. If you try this one, though, um, and your vet prescribes it and you feel like it's not working, make sure you ask them about changing the dosage um, because it does have a fairly wide dosing range, and the sedative effects for it do improve for a lot of dogs and cats after a few days to weeks. And then the last one I'm going to mention, amantadine, can be useful in dogs with chronic pain as it helps to reduce the wind-up aspect um, for chronic pain. And it's not good on its own, but combined with a non-steroidal, it can really help improve pain control, especially for these guys that um, have had pain for a long time or just the other meds just aren't quite cutting it anymore. So I thanks for your question, John, and I hope your Corgi mix gets to feeling better soon and that you can find the right plan um, for your dog. And remember all, while I'm a veterinarian, I'm not your veterinarian. My guidance is only intended to give you some ballpark info in general so you can discuss with your vet your concerns more effectively and what you can likely expect from their official treatment recommendations. Thanks, Jack, and I hope everyone has a great weekend. Bye. So just a few additions. Um in addition to just injury and arthritis, um, one of the things that can cause dogs to have not only hip pain but just hip issues is a lot of dogs as they get older, you know, especially shepherd breeds, uh, can have basically neural, neural de degeneration in, in their back end. And this is what my dog Max is dealing with right now, and it sucks. And it sucks because there is no coming back from it, and it is something that will only become progressively worse over time and exercise without over exercise is one of the only things you can do to help the dog uh, continue to keep strength in the muscles so that they can f basically fight this degeneration so that's one of the things to speak to your vet about is whether you're dealing with arthritis and hip problems and and whatnot or you're actually dealing with neural degeneration and you can usually determine this in my experience anyway just by looking at the animal a dog is having hip pains Um, the hips, and it's arthritis, generally the back end of the dog will be commensurate with the front end of the dog. dog's a little bit overweight, his back end's a little overweight too. He's going to be sausage-shaped. If he's cut the way he's supposed to be, you kind of look in the same on both ends. When they have neural degeneration, you'll have a dog that kind of has a, a almost like a, a triangular shape to him. That back end will shrink up faster than the front end. 
And if you see that, then it's at least possible. Again, something to talk to your doctor about. And you're in a situation of treating symptoms. The next thing is preventing overexertion. When I let the dogs out because they're upset about something, um, there's times I just won't let Max out. If Lucy and Charlie want to run to the fence and go berserk because a guy's riding down the street on a horse or whatever, fine, Max doesn't need to go. If I'm going to let him go, when they're all excited and all three dogs want to get out, I will take him by the collar, I will walk him to the door, I will open the door, I will let Lucy and Charlie out, and I will wait till he's calm and let him go so he doesn't put that big burst of speed on there because a lot of times he'll come back limping a lot worse than when it started if I don't control that. And floors and slipping is a big deal. And there's another thing we have to deal with our dogs and understand that we're going to be dealing with when we take a dog into our home. Just as most people will go into some point as they age and go into their, their final years where they have some level of dementia, not everybody ends up with full-blown Alzheimer's, but we tend to start to lose some of our mental faculties as we age. Your dogs will do this as well. And a lot of times, this type of pain, and I de dealt with this with Lakota, and I'm dealing with it with Max now, the pain and this dog timers, if you want to call it that, kind of will come at the same time being something you really have to deal with. For instance, Max has some hard time getting up on our, our tile floor. He can do it, but it's a little bit difficult. Because of this, he now has a mental issue with changing textures. So if he's going from carpet to tile or tile to carpet, it, he will pause, and you need to make sure that there's not something in there that prevents the dog from having the ability to do whatever he needs to do to be okay with it. Here's an example of this is clearly not just a weakness issue. This is a mental problem the dog has. If my dog, Max, is laying in our living room where we have kind of a peel-and-stick tile floor because we haven't redone it yet, he will struggle a little bit to get up, If he's on his bed, he can get straight up. If he's on the carpet, he can get straight up. It's only that floor. But when he gets up in there, whether he's on his bed or the floor or not, the bedroom door needs to be open where there's a carpet. Even though he's already up, he will go in the bedroom. He will turn around, and he always turns the same way around. He goes in head first and then turns to his right and comes back out, and he'll walk straight across that floor with no fear of it. There was a time we had some baby toys and stuff between the door and him, and the poor damn dog tried to jump over them because it was so important to him to be able to go into that room and turn around before he... And it's, it, is, it is a mental disorder. It is mental degeneration. It is the same thing as when your, your Aunt Edna, who's 93 years old, thinks that she needs to go to get batteries for, for the hearing aid for her husband, your Uncle Frank, who's been dead for 25 years. The dog needs to be able to do this, whatever it is. They need to, and you need to make sure that you recognize this behavior and make a, 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 a you know make exceptions for the animal. The it's worse than a human. The dog cannot understand at all that it's dealing with this situation. It doesn't even have like people have those moments where they're. They're lucid, and they can understand what's going on, and then they go back into these problems. Even when the dog has lucidity, it can't, be, it can't explain it to him. So you have to make allowance for this. And you might have things like with Lakota, instead of having that eccentricity, there, we just had to watch him. There were times the dog would walk into a corner and then not know what to do. And we had to walk in and turn him around. When you end up at that stage with your dog, you got to be there for him. That's all I'm going to say. Now, 
The one product I found that helps with joints and really does work is uh, Cosamine DM, and I have a link in the, the show notes. I give Max two of those twice a day, and Lucy and Charlie get one a day as a maintenance thing because they don't have any problems, and I want to keep them from having as long as possible. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about RVs in harsh climates with Gary Collins. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, where I discuss all things simple living, primal paleo health, RV living, off-the-grid living, you just name it. Anything that makes your life better, that's what we talk about. Um, today, this is per getting a lot of questions this season on freezing pipes and RVs. Um, this is going to be kind of a quick buyer's guide. And remember, guys, my simp the Simple Life Guide to RV Living Available on Amazon and on my website. It is the best beginner's book that I could put together. I didn't go too far in the weeds. It's great for people who are just getting started out and confused about RVs. But the biggest thing is if you're going to use an RV, which me and Jack have talked about and suggested, if you're going to live off the grid in between building your property, living in an RV makes it simple unless you go about it the wrong way. Then things can get a little difficult. The one I tried to hammer home, and I've done this, and I've had a few people give me pushback, and I go, oh, they're going to learn a lesson, um, an all-season RV, essential. If you're going to live in an area where it's colder, uh, you know, and has ho or has hotter summers, simple rule is the difference between an all-season and a normal travel trailer slash RV is a normal one's made for camping. It's lighter built, has less insulation, single pane windows, and all season will have much more insulation, especially in the roof, uh, better built in the frame and chassis as well. And most of them will come with dual pane windows. If not, it's an option that you can get. Mine is definitely a harder core all season RV, and there's a huge difference because I've owned the other ones as well. So if you're going to live in that kind of environment, in the winter, there's two big things. And this is why I always say, get your infrastructure done first. You want your water, you want your septic, and you need your solar, uh, wind power, hydro, whatever you're going to use. Because you are going to burn through a ton of propane in the winter. I mean, tons. RVs are highly inefficient at heating with their heater system and propane. So you want to be able to compensate with electric heater, uh, you know, it's the easiest way. That's what a lot of us do. Um, especially if you're in an RV park and you can plug in or you have, uh, utilities, you're not living completely off the grid. You're just living remotely, but you have utilities in that way, you know, makes your life easier till you build the house all season. Again, get an all season RV. It will say on the door. If you ask the dealer, some are an option. You got to be careful where it's a normal RV and the, the all season package is a package. You have to buy it separately. I do not recommend that. Get an RV travel trailer that is already geared for all season out of the gate built that way. Um, with your pipes freezing heat tape guys, heat tape is your friend. You must heat tape again, electrical source. You need electricity for that to work. So you have to have a portable uh, solar system or your internal structure for your power system put in place. Those will help keep your pipes from freezing. Another thing is if you're using uh, propane, trust me, like I said, you're going to burn through a ton of it, but that will usually keep 
everything heated, but you're underneath and inside your ducking and everything and all your water pipes, but also some of these tanks are like mine are, are heated. Well, they're heated with electricity. They have basically heat, uh, tape or, you know, like a, a heat plate in them underneath them so that you're, you know, you're pooping pee and your, your water won't freeze on you. That's the whole point. But I ran into someone who's, kitchen pipes were freezing or uh, their sink pipe in their kitchen was freezing and that should never happen because that's right next to your water heater which told me that they were running propane only and were dry camping uh, more than likely uh, maybe not they said they had water but that would tell me that they were running uh, their and it, I looked up their model and the uh, all weather package was an addition and I have a strong feeling they did not buy the addition so I hope that helps, guys. Like I said, I've been getting a lot of questions on frozen pipes. Again, go to the thesimplelifenow.com. I'm an MSB member, so make sure you get 10% off and free shipping on your uh, first order. Thanks, or all orders, sorry, for MSB members. If you've signed up for the newsletter, you'll get 10% off your first order. And I highly recommend the newsletter. Don't use social media, really. Thanks, guys. Um, I'm going to throw in my two cents here, about 30 seconds of it only. RVs have tires on them, and you hook them up to a vehicle and you tow them to a place. I believe if you want to live the RV lifestyle, the reason you're doing it is because of those wheels on the bottom that make that thing be able to go wherever it needs to. And I think that your best strategy during this type of weather, including when you're building an off-grid place, like this is exactly what Gary did. Gary lived in an RV while building his off-grid location. When you get to the point where the weather becomes this miserable, hook the RV up to the truck and point the truck south and go spend your winter in a warmer client like a snowbird. That's that's my suggestion because I have been in RVs in miserable weather, and no matter how much effort you make, it continues to be a miserable proposition. Uh, next up, we have a question here for high blood pressure without prescription medications, how to deal with it and lower it with old dog bones. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award first place winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, the brand new Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in Austere Settings, plus the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel is from Mike the 18th, who writes, What is your advice on how to lower blood pressure without pills? I've had an issue with blood pressure being too high, and I've been looking online for help, and I'm seeing all sorts of answers. It seems if you look long enough, you can find the one you really want. One guy says no salt. Others say you can have salt. One apparent MD even said smoking doesn't affect it. I have a wrist reader, and going by price, it's about middle grade. And I've noticed that if I take it while smoking, it doesn't seem to change. I don't know. I went on prescription pills. They didn't work, so they gave me more. They didn't work, and they gave me another. So I was on three different pills that still wasn't working. I quit them all, and it never went higher. I've been real strict with my diet, even got to the point where I'm scared to eat. I've been at one meal a day, and sometimes it could be a small meal. I'm just looking for some advice or pointers from someone I can rely on. Thank you, Mike the 18th. Mike, I've heard of Henry the 8th, but not Mike the 18th. 
I'll bet it's an interesting story. You know, one of the most common chronic medical conditions, in good times or bad, is high blood pressure, also known as hypertension. For those who don't know, the blood pressure is the measure of the blood flow pushing against the walls of the arteries in your body. If this pressure is elevated over time, it can cause long-term damage, significant long-term damage. And many millions of adults in the U.S. have this condition, which is often asymptomatic. That means no signs or symptoms of the problem. Because of this, it has been referred to as a silent killer. Blood pressure tends to rise with increasing age and weight. Mike, you didn't give me any numbers in terms of your blood pressure readings other than to say they're high and that you've been on up to three medications without effect. The definition of hypertension has indeed recently changed, and people with what was once considered a reasonable pressure of 130 over 80 are now considered to be hypertensive. Since that puts almost everybody over 55 in that category, a lot of people are now taking medications, often more than one, just to try to get the blood pressure below that level. Other information that would have been helpful is your age, height, and weight. Why? The first step to controlling elevated blood pressures is to return to a normal weight for your height and age. You've been eating less, but what is your actual weight at this time? Most people who are overweight find that their pressures decrease now, oftentimes back to normal when they lose weight. Even a loss of 10 pounds can have a beneficial effect. My blood pressure is always a little lower when I'm thinner. Physical exercise and dietary control are the best ways to get there. Dietary restriction of sodium, that is pretty important when it comes to decreasing pressures. Excessive salt intake appears to decrease the natural elasticity of arteries in many people. Apparently, however, as you say, it apparently isn't that way with everyone, and you may be one of those people. Sodium is in just about everything you eat, though, so it's a good idea maybe to stop adding salt to food. Alcohol, nicotine, and perhaps caffeine are also known to raise blood pressures. Avoiding these substances is an additional strategy. And how about cutting out the smoking, Mike? The effects on your blood pressure aren't always apparent while you're smoking, but the long-term effects can be life-threatening. The National Institute of Health recommends the DASH diet, D-A-S-H, stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. That is a diet that generally encourages the consumption of nuts, whole grains, fish, poultry, fruits and vegetables, while lowering the consumption of red meat, sweets, and sugar. It's also a reasonable diet for healthy people. It's rich in protein, potassium, calcium, and magnesium. And studies have shown that the DASH diet can indeed reduce high blood pressure within two weeks in certain cases. Natural supplements have also been used to lower blood pressure as well. Any herb that has a sedative effect could lower your blood pressure. Valerian root, passion flower, lemon balm, make teas out of them are some examples. Garlic and cayenne pepper are also well known to have a modest lowering effect. Don't forget natural relaxation techniques like meditation, yoga, and massage therapy. They often have the effect of lowering blood pressure. Take a reading after a session. You might be surprised at the results. Mike, just because you haven't found the right medication to get your blood pressure down doesn't mean that it doesn't exist somewhere. You may have to kiss a few frogs before you find a prince. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, besides getting a copy of our Survival Medicine Handbook and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, and don't forget that the Member Support Brigade gets a discount off everything in our store.
Um, I'm going to throw in one more thing. Turn off the effing television, especially the news portion of the television. Uh, don't get so wrapped up in the world. You might think that's like partially obvious and partially, yeah, well, you know, still, you know, I'm going to tell you flat out that, for instance, there's one gentleman that watched my property for me last year, and he said, one of the reasons I wanted to do this for you is I feel like you saved my life. This guy was flying uh, missions in the Air Force in Afghanistan. And, you know, you get a lot of regular checkups, and his blood pressure was really high. And basically, the doctors told him, like, you got to figure out what's going on here. You're going to stroke out. And he said that one day he was listening to my show, and I said, sometimes you just have to let go of shit. And that there was something in the way that I said it at the exact moment that he was ready for it that he decided, I'm going to let go of it. And, you know, one of the things you're worried about with a guy doing uh, dangerous work like that with high blood pressure and, and having stress issues is, is the work itself what's causing it. Because it could be kind of stressful flying a plane that people might shoot down uh, and landing in places where people drop mortars and stuff like that. But all of a sudden, it just leveled out. And he decided he didn't really care what the TV said. And he didn't really care about ass clowns, that he was going to only care about the things that he controlled. I'm not saying this is this simple for everybody, and I'm not even saying if it will work that it, it, you're going to be ready for it. But I am going to say give it a chance. Give it a chance. And don't be afraid of things that we think of as new agey and hippie, too, like meditation. Uh, I can't. I, I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it today. But I did verify it, and it came from, the source on this was Dr. Andrew Well, who, um, who wrote books such as Eight Weeks to Optimum Health. It might even have been in that book that I read this that a study was done with people that practice simple meditation, and it was found to be more effective at lowering moderately high blood pressure. Not, not people that are fixing to die tomorrow, but people with you know that are 20 points higher than they should be. That it was more effective in lowering uh, blood pressure than standard prescribed medication for them to meditate three times a day. And again, if the source is Dr. Andrew Weil, then you know that you're not going to get bullshit. The guy is solid. Um, you may want to try that as well. With that, let's go ahead and take another one here, this one on diagnosing transmission problems in a diesel truck. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. Got a question from John in Missouri. He writes, he's got a 99 Dodge 3500 diesel, won't shift into overdrive, and doesn't want to downshift. Went out of stop, wants to take off in second gear, but will when manually put into first on the column. That bit of information is very important. Details. Took this truck to a transmission place, and all they could tell me was it was a computer or wiring issue. Was wondering how I may check these myself, rather than what everyone seems to say, take it to the dealer and spend $1,000 to fix one problem, even though it might be the other. By the way, the truck has 45,000 miles on it. It wasn't used hard, so it shouldn't have stripped belts or anything. Thanks for your help or ideas. That sounds like a really good truck that's got some potential, slow miles, highly sought after, even though it does have a transmission that's less than desirable, the old 47RE. But let's get into it. Automatic transmission problems definitely want to start with the basics. That means fluid level and condition, and we want to be checking that in the correct gear position, whether it calls for neutral or park. So definitely check that manual. 
we definitely want to also make sure that the filter was changed as well. So those are some basics we want to cover no matter what kind of automatic transmission you have. This older particular transmission has bands that also require adjustment. So that means you have to drop the, the pan as well, typically on a transmission, and adjust those bands. So if those were missed as well during the maintenance, could cause some potential problems. Another important one is going to be visual inspections. So this particular transmission also has issues with uh, moisture and corrosion on the electrical connections and also bad grounds. Now that can apply to anything, but this seemed to come up a lot when I was doing some homework on this vehicle. Uh, and also they're notorious for having failures with the pressure solenoid and transducer. And this is going to cause the transmission to have some erratic shifting behavior and also throw it into a limp mode, which is going to cause it to get stuck into a particular gear while driving. So right out of the gate, we want to do a really thorough evaluation of the big picture items. Fluid levels, corrosion, things like that. Check that before diving deep with any kind of major diagnostics. Now, before we start throwing any parts at this thing, what I recommend doing is getting yourself a factory repair manual. I found one for a 96 Ram, one ton on manuals lib. That's manualslib.com. You can do a search there for any kind of appliance, vehicle, etc. Tons of manuals on there, but source a factory manual. This is going to be critical. What we're looking for in this factory manual is a symptom chart. So as I stated before, a critical piece of information is that, one, we're not going into overdrive, and two, it's starting off in second gear, but it will use first gear if you manually place the lever in the L or one position, whatever it is. So that's telling me that first gear works perfectly fine as far as the clutches and brakes and the planetary gear sets, and this is probably going to be a controls issue rather than like an actual hard fault that requires teardown. So I really dig the road test that you did and the evaluation as far as what is happening in the shift pattern. If this requires a lot of road testing and writing notes down, pay very close attention to what it's doing because we're going to reference this in the symptom chart. This chart suggesting on this particular vehicle, this is most likely going to be an internal pressure issue, could be the solenoid or a transducer, could be a band adjustment, valve body piston that's sticking, uh, all of this stuff can definitely be fixed with some basic skill and know-how coming from that book. We're not talking about any kind of major crazy teardowns or anything like that. Uh, so what we're going to really want to do is focus on these particular items that the book suggests. Now, if it's an electrical problem, it could be a solenoid in the valve body. It could be the wiring that runs from the valve body to the outside of the transmission casing. All of that is going to require dropping the pan to look at, but... It also could be the connector that goes to the transmission or the wiring that's laid up on the frame, might be melted from the exhaust, who knows. So we're going to inspect all of that stuff, but we're, then we're going to carry out the tests that the books describes to check this stuff out. may require a pressure gauge, so you're going to have to source that, but cheaper to get a pressure gauge and have one on hand to do the test than it is to pay a dealership to do the same exact thing. So what you can do is do the Google search and find all the common problems like that pressure transducer and, and uh, pressure solenoid and change those out. That'll certainly, if you want to start throwing parts at it, potentially fix the problem because those are very, very common and do the exact same things that you're describing. But I would also systematically go from one end to the other just to make sure that we catch everything because you might have something that's causing it not to go into overdrive and something completely different that's causing it to not go into first gear at a stop. If you go through this and really can't find anything, 
there is a special tool that uh, the dealership or possibly a transmission shop is going to have that they can plug into this and actually shift it manually using the box, which bypasses the wiring and the ECM and everything like that. So basically you can figure out if it's just in the transmission, whether it's electrical or, or uh, clutches, brakes, et cetera, or if it's electrical on the outside, like weird computer problems or input sensors, things like that. You're probably not going to purchase that, but I would, after going through all my checks with the book, if I found nothing, would probably take that next step. And anybody that knows the tool and knows what they're doing is going to have it or be able to replicate those particular tests, and they're not just going to give you a vague answer. So I would go to a shop that has that particular equipment. It really sounds like what you've got here is a solenoid or wiring issue. I think 99% of the time, all of the uh, symptoms that you have are going to be an external fix. Even if you have to drop the pan, drain the fluid out of it to get into that area, even if you had to replace a valve body because one of the pistons was stuck inside of it, you can still do that without dropping the transmission and doing an overhaul. Not to mention that if it's an external issue, you can do a complete teardown and overhaul and still have the same exact problem because it wasn't inside the transmission. So do the tests, save yourself some money. I hope that sends you in the right direction, fixing this transmission problem. That's a great truck that you've got there that if it's in good shape will definitely carry a ton of value as long as you don't go too crazy with that diesel doing modifications to it. To wrap things up, check out my website, affordabledcgenerators.com. I know what you're thinking. That's quite the clever business name. It's exactly what we're delivering. Going to see my product on Amazon in two to three weeks. Get yourself an affordable DC generator if you've got any kind of battery-based system that you need to be charging. Take care, guys. Looking forward to the next one. All right, time for my segment today. This comes from Josh. Josh says, how do I move out of California? I live in California's Central Valley, six hours in any direction. I'm still in California or the middle of the ocean. I would like to move to either Kentucky, North Carolina, or Tennessee, but the logistics seem insurmountable. I work for USPS, so I can transfer with little issue, but I can't buy a house until I sell my house, and I can't sell my house until I have somewhere to go. I can't fly out there once a month to look for properties or anything more than once a year, really. I have no family or friends out that way to help, but I really want out of here. Any advice you can give me on moving cross-country with no help at the receiving end would be appreciated. Thanks for your help, Josh. Okay, Josh, the first thing I'm going to suggest is to not think that there is no help. I'm going to suggest a couple things. I'm going to suggest, one, even though it doesn't get a lot of traffic anymore, I did set up the Walking to Freedom forum for this. I'm going to recommend you get by there and post in those three state boards, and maybe someone will pop up. I'm going to recommend that you get onto the podcast forum and post and want find the board that seems most appropriate there and post that that's what you're looking to do and you'd appreciate any advice, any on-the-ground help. But the number one resource for this, especially when you use the state of Tennessee, is the Zello channel. I'm really going to recommend that you set up an account on the Zello channel, get on there, introduce yourself so the moderators will turn you on and let you talk. And just let people know, I'm considering moving to Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, and be prepared for the... Uh, the Get Shit Done crew in, in Middle Tennessee to, to really try to sell you on Tennessee. And all of a sudden you'll have some people that at least can say, hey, I can point you in the right direction. So start using this community that we've built. Um, there are state-level forums on Facebook. So you can get on the, the – I'll put a link to the page where I have all of them listed. Get on those Facebook forums and say, hey, I'm thinking about moving out of this area. What are your thoughts on different places? So at least you might have somebody or some group of somebodies that can give you a little bit of advice. Now, the next thing I'm going to suggest is to do a lot of research, and let's narrow down that 
group of three states to one. And let's try to come up with a region that we want to live in so that we don't have to transfer again. Because uh, transferring is, is, is fine, but I think that you know the more times you transfer, the more stressful it can become. So it, you still have the option to transfer a second time, I guess, but there's probably limits to how frequently and why and whatnot you can transfer for. So if we can at least kind of hit the right area. And then rent. This is what when you are moving a long distance and you are in the exact situation that you describe, then the smartest thing that you can do is find a place to rent on a one-year lease, and that gives you a full year of living there to find what you're looking for. Now, I am going to add to that. You can take a week off and go to that place, rent a car, and make sure it really is the kind of place that you want to be, that it makes sense to go there. And that way when you're out there, if after like a day or two you're like, I don't know, you pull the map out and all of those states and major areas in them are in driving distance of each other, and drive around and try to find, make sure that the place matches the expectation. Because there can be a big culture shock going from somewhere like California to Tennessee. Uh, and the one thing about those areas, especially the areas that a lot of people from this audience would be drawn to, In the rural parts of that, where you're talking about the Appalachian Mountains, there are, there is the reality that to some of the people that live there, you will always be an outsider from California. Your grandkids might be accepted as local. And it is a thing. Now, I've also found that, that while that is true, it is more the exception than the rule, and there are plenty of welcoming people, and we have become much more of a migratory society as the republic does what a republic is supposed to do and give people options to do exactly what you want to do. Say, this state has lost its effing mind and I'm done here and I'm going somewhere else. So that's the approach I would take. And I don't think it's as complicated maybe as you're making it out that if you really know the area, like, so it's, see, here's what you're doing, Josh. And there's so many people do this. So I want to move and I want this life, and then this is the kind of place that I need to have this life that I want. Okay, so instead of trying to find the house and the property and the land that you want, just find the area. And, you know, you, it sounds like you're a single guy. You can rent a freaking two-bedroom trailer for a year. I mean, you, you know, I mean, it saves some money. Like, live as cheap as you can on, on, on for that year. And then who, with who you work for, you get lots of time off. Use that time off. Find what you really love about the new place. You know, hopefully we're close enough that we're in, the, we're in like with it when we move there. And then let's use that year to become in love with it and find the opportunity. Now we're not in a rush. Now we're on the ground. We're working our new job. We've met our new supervisor. We've, since we work for a company, it's very procedural. It probably doesn't take very long to get to where we're just doing our job every day. And now we can just take our time and look around. And when we find that opportunity, we can execute that opportunity. So this is the other piece of advice I would give you. Make sure that wherever you lease, and you're probably going to have a one-year lease no matter what you do, that you have the terms of breaking the lease understood. Some leases have gotten to be ridiculous now. Basically, six months in, I want to leave. They want you to pay all of the lease, like you, like you were staying there, and they still want to penalize you. Don't rent a place like that. Find a place you can rent where, you know, here's a typical 
way that a lease is broken. You surrender your security deposit, you pay the current month, you pay the next month, and you have to give at least 30 days notification. And even if you had to pay two months, I would just, whatever it is, let's budget that. That way, if just by stupid luck, three months in, holy crap, that's the place, that is the place. You know, you're going to be able to give 30 days notice, it's take you more than 30 days to close anyway. Right? And and don't be afraid to like, you know, get with the Zello crew. It just so happens that Nicole Sauce, who is like one of the main people on the Zello group, rents property and, and just I think just rented a property to somebody else in Nashville. So there is so much opportunity within this community to get a little bit of help, and sometimes just a little bit of help. Because a lot of people will rent a place with much better terms. If they know they're helping somebody and they know they can count on that person to meet their end of the obligation and not be tearing the house apart or something like that. So, I mean, any landlord would love to get a long-term tenant. It's in there for 10 years, and when they leave, the place is better than when they got there. But the reality is a lot of people rent because they're in a short-term mindset. Not because they can't buy, they're not ready to buy yet for whatever reason, and they're, they're working toward buying. So that's what I would do. Find a place you can rent. For the best budget you can end up with, and there's a lot of great opportunities in those states to live very affordably, live a little bit Spartan, spend your time falling in love with the place, spend your time shopping for the right place. That gives you a year. And most leases have the option to like extend for 60 days or something like that. Most leases have the option that when the lease ends, you can go without a lease and your rent goes way up. So if you end up close to it, And you need an extra month. If you have that money put away, here's an example. My uh, niece and nephew, or like I said, my nephew and my niece-in-law, I guess it is, um, are moving to a house. They're renting a place now. They're moving to another place. They're doing very well for themselves. They're a the couple that make a lot of money on Instagram I talk about at times. And uh, they are just basically going to start their new lease one month before their old lease ends. So for one month, they're going to pay on both houses. Since they have the money put away and planned for it, they can, and to them it's worth the money to have a full month to move. Now, again, if you end up in that situation, you're toward the end, and now you find the property, you need an extra month, you had the money put away to break the lease, you're not even going to use all the money. You're just going to have that one extra month and maybe $100 more or whatever. Now you've got your time to make that transition smoothly. If you do this that way, you have more time than you could ever need to find what you're looking for. Take the money from selling that house, you know, put it into the bank, and don't mess with it, and leave it for that. And that money that you make when you sell your house, there's plenty of budget in there probably to do all the things I just talked about, Josh. Don't see it as an absolute need to buy right away. Just find a place you can rent until you find a place you want to live and reach out into the community. Hopefully that helps you, and hopefully it helps other people. Sometimes the simple solutions like that, because people are so close to it, they just don't see them. And it's what holds them back. So maybe it won't just let you do what you want to do in Walking to Freedom, but maybe some other members of this audience as well. All right, guys, with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. want to remind you one of the ways you can help support this show is do your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go there, you help support this show no matter what you buy. 
I have an item of review for you guys today that I think you'll really like. I had it just a couple months ago, but I'm bringing it around again today for a couple reasons. One, I said it's a good time to plant this product. And a lot of you said, not where I live, fool. It's so cold, I'm out there with a pickaxe and can't get in the ground. It's still frozen. So I thought, well, let's remind you guys again about Jerusalem Artichokes from Yum Heart Gardens. You can get those on Amazon. I bought from a lot of people on Amazon. Uh, but when it came to this particular thing, I always trust these folks. Good, viable product. Uh, in fact, last year I bought some of them in May, and I just didn't get the area ready to plant them, and I threw them in the refrigerator, and I planted them in March this year. April, March, April, yeah, April, May, yeah, May last year, so 10 months they were in the refrigerator. They were still viable and still grew. So, I mean, I know I'm getting a good, you know, fresh product from these folks, and I added a video to my review today. So a lot of people worry about Jerusalem artichokes becoming invasive, spreading too fast, etc., I go over everything in that nine-minute video today so you can check it out. Because I'm going to tell you this. A lot of you, like if you live near a Whole Foods or something, you may be able to just go down to Whole Foods and buy them for food, and they're going to grow. So you may not need to get them on Amazon. I wanted to make sure that I was making this crop available to you. If I had to put a list together of my top ten survival crops, things you should be growing because they provide for you and they're reliable and you can you know you're going to get the yield out of them and they're widely adaptable, Jerusalem artichokes would be near the top of that top ten list. Um, in fact, it might be the number one plant. In fact, I'm thinking about doing that. If y'all be interested in a show like my top, and I don't know, when I got down into the, the, the math on it, it might be eight, like my top eight survival crops. If you think that would be a good Tuesday standalone show, let me know. Maybe I'll do that. But Jerusalem artichokes might be number one. So check out the review, check out the video, and we'll call it short today, and let's talk about our song of the day. Song of the day this, uh, today is by James Taylor, one of my favorite singers. I really do love James Taylor's music. Um, it's called Secret O' Life. And basically, the little thing on song facts about it said like yogis and stuff might, or Buddhists might spend their whole lifetime trying to figure out what the secret of life and, 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 and being happy really is all about and learning detachment and stuff. But James Taylor, um, Figured it out in about 30 seconds, sit on Martha's Vineyard and just relaxing and letting go. And it's also about the secret to love, opening yourself up. The song's about that type of thing. And it's about the fact that we're heading downhill because we're aging. And we might as well, since we're only here for a time, we might as well do it with a little bit of style and a little bit of class. And this is a great song for a Friday. But I think the real thing here is the secret of life is individual. My secret of life and your secret of life probably are actually the same thing, but what will trigger the realization is different. But maybe one of the things that triggered my realization of the secret of life might help some of you find your own. When I was a pretty young man, I'm talking early 20s, not long out of the military, a friend of mine I worked with gave me a couple books, and one of them was Illusions. The Confessions of a Reluctant Messiah by Richard Bach. And I've talked about that book on the air a few times. And in that book, at one point, Richard, the self-titled character, is talking to Don Shimoda, who's like the, the, the guru. And he says, what is the secret to life? And basically what they come out with is the secret of life is to learn and to have fun. That humans are basically the otters of the universe. And that might sound overly simplified. But education and entertainment is really the meaning of life. Not maybe the secret of life, but the meaning of life. We are here to learn as much as we can and to have as much fun as we can while we do it. And 
I think always the secret to life, which really what we're saying is what is the, what is the way that we can be happy, has to be simple. Otherwise, it's too much work. And if you can distill your life down to my purpose is to learn and to have fun, the other things that we worry so much about, you'll be able to figure out. Because if it's how am I going to make enough money to pay the bills, well, that is learning. And how do I do it without being miserable? Well, that is having fun. Just something to ponder this weekend about what is your secret to life. What is it for you that makes you able to live the life that you really want? With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Secret life is enjoying the passage of time. Any fool can do it There ain't nothing to it Nobody knows how we got to The top of the hill Since we're on our way down We might as well enjoy the ride Secret of love is in opening up your heart It's okay to feel afraid But don't let that stand in your way Cause anyone knows that love is the only road Since we're on for a while Might as well show some style Give us a smile Isn't it a lovely ride Sliding down Gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely